praise the Lord who has called us here and uh, invited us to worship him and has deemed to meet us here in all of our distractions and all of our weakness and brokenness. Uh, we praise him as he has called us here. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Thank you so much, Lord, for uh, this occasion here, for gathering us together from the world and reminding us of who we are in your presence. Now, Lord, would you please meet us here? And would you please bless us as we open up your word? In Jesus' name, amen. So as Josh said earlier this morning, we are continuing for the rest of this month and the first month of September, <laughs> the first Sunday of September, uh, to talk about uh, family discipleship, uh, and we're just taking this kind of a, a transition time, and then we're entering Exodus soon, just so you know what's coming. Next week, we have a guest speaker. Some of you remember him. He's been here before, named Mike Kellett. He'll be here speaking for us. And then after that, Terry and I are going to close out this, this series, and really excited to jump into Exodus uh, with you after that. So this morning, we're continuing on where I started last week, and uh, since last week, I kind of butchered it. I wanted to go back to uh, some of the things I tried to say last week and say it a little bit clearer. Uh, we're, we're talking about the romantic myth. Now, I don't mean to say when I say that that there's no such thing as romantic love or somehow we invented romantic love in recent times. Romantic love, I think, has always existed. It's a, it's a human thing, and it's a good thing as far as it goes. It's just in recent times, the myth that's developed is that that is the most important thing and that all of life should be arranged around it. And this kind of love tends to be very me-centered, very get-my-needs-met-centered kind of love. And, and, and I'll just put it on the PowerPoint for you here. Uh, in the romantic myth, people have strong feelings for each other and long for sexual, psychological intimacy. And as that's happening, the other, male or female, is idealized and regarded as necessary for one's happiness. What happens when we have those fundamental beliefs in place is that we expect the other to meet our every need. And particularly, although we would not necessarily put it in these terms usually, we expect them to meet what are really spiritual needs. And it leads us to great disappointment and great frustration because the air in that balloon always gets let out sooner or later. And it's so important that we realize that this is a myth that has been foisted upon society in relatively recent history that you can meet someone and they will so satisfy you that you'll, that's where happiness is and you'll never have another problem, uh, at least not one that's too great for you because you have found that other person. And it's all over the place, all over our, our uh, movies, all over our songs. Here's one that from, from when I was a teenager, I guess, used to be on the radio and I've thought about this song multiple times over the years. Leanne Rimes sang it. How do I get through one night without you? If I had to live without you, what kind of life would that be? Oh, I, I need you in my arms, need you to hold. You're my world, my heart, my soul. And if you ever leave, baby, you would take away everything good in my life. Goodness gracious. I mean, they've probably been dating for about two months. That, that's when people are usually saying these kind of things, right? 
I mean, truly, if you look at the stats, most divorces take place within the first two years of marriage. You know why? Because this stuff wears off in the first two years of marriage. And people realize, oh, uh, I need something else besides this. And tell me now, how do I live without you? I want to know. How do I breathe without you? If you ever go, how do I ever, ever survive? How do I, how do I, oh, how do I live? Man, that's really into somebody, right? But you got millions of people singing this stuff across the nation. And I understand there's some poetic license and there's some exaggeration. But we don't have to necessarily exaggerate so narcissistically. Because people are basically believing this message. Not, not okay, how do I breathe? You know, they, understandably, they don't really think that. But, but, but they are thinking, yes, if I find that person, that's how I make it. And if I lose that person, I can't make it. And in essence, what they're doing is they're looking for someone to meet their deepest unmet needs. And I want to tell you right now, you need to release your spouse from that burden. They were never called to do that. And as you look towards marriage, those of you who are in that position, release that person from that burden. Your life will go so much better if you recognize this for the myth that it is. Recognize that, that God did not create, create people so they could find happiness by being married. That's one blessing that God gives. But people are not incomplete who are unmarried. Many of you in here are unmarried, and you're not incomplete. Marriage can be a blessing. Many people, though, would say it's not a blessing. And this is the sad truth of our world. So don't, don't uh, and what I mean is many people who are married, uh, don't believe the lies. Things like this, like this song, get us caught up in, in this world of, of falsity and we have expectations that mislead us and disappoint us and it does great harm to us when I was 14 years old I still remember watching the movie First Night I still think it's one of the best movies ever made An incredible movie with Richard Gere and I don't remember what the other uh, what the lady's name was who played Guinevere he was Lancelot she was Guinevere and uh, I remember watching that movie at 14 years old, and I remember being somewhat depressed afterward. Because as I watched that movie, and as it romanticized their relationship, at the end of that movie, I wanted that woman. And I didn't just want that woman. I wanted that story. I remember this, uh, walking around the next day, 14 years old, being sad, thinking, I can't go rescue her from the bad guys. <laughs> I wanted that drama in my life. I wanted to go out and do that and be for And I'm not saying, by the way, that's not all bad, right? But it's got to get pointed towards the right thing. We are made for drama. We're made for goodness. And uh, uh, ultimately, that finds its, its, uh, its uh, reference point in God. But I remember that feeling and what nobody told me. I wish somebody had told me a long time ago. After Lancelot got Guinevere and, and after all the, the drama stopped... They had to wake up and live with each other. That's what happened. And after the, after the battles were fought with the, with the uh, enemy, and they had won, after the bad guys were gone, and after the heated passion of lust had, had passed on, then they had to decide, what were they going to do for breakfast? <laughs> or, or how do they meet each other's needs? And then they aged. And then they weren't as attractive. 
And then they had competing and conflicting desires and selfishness that nobody had ever addressed that had to get worked out. And they probably didn't make it. I'm, being exagger I'm exaggerating there. Maybe, maybe they would have. But this is what marriage is. That's not what the movies show us most of the time. And it's not what the songs show us. God calls us into marriages. Uh, when he calls us into marriages, he does so to, to bless us and to bless others. But he doesn't do it to be some kind of replacement for himself. And we have to be very clear about this. The movies will confuse us, even Disney movies, maybe especially Disney movies. <laughs> I want to go back through all the Disney movies and rate them with a Christian rating, with an understanding of, of what they're doing. Cinderella, rated R. Snow White, PG-13. Because they're telling us lies. And of course, if Bambi said a cuss word, we wouldn't watch it. Well, that'd be kind of weird if Bambi said a cuss word, actually. That'd be very strange. But, but, but we stay away from things like that. But we, don't ever, we let our kids just drink this stuff in, and we never tell them any different. And this is my, look, I'm not saying we need to be watching a bunch of sex and violence and, and filthy cussing. We, we have, you have to, you know, we have a longer conversation about how to be discerning about what movies we watch, and that's, that's a wholly different subject matter I'm not trying to get into right now. But I am afraid that sometimes we have been lulled asleep uh, by our world, not knowing how Satan might like to attack and confuse us. And we say, oh, well, those are clean movies, and they can completely confuse us about the gospel because they preach to us and they tell us what a good life is and they tell us how to find a good life. And it's a message that they give to us. They say, if you find the one, you know, you ever heard that phrase, the one? You have to find the one and that's how you'll be happy. You can't be happy without the one. Not too long ago, something came up. I know you... A number of you husbands and wives probably have had this conversation, but Olivia was asking me, I think, would I remarry if, if she died prematurely? And I told her, only if I found the one. She did not like that very much. <laughs> but it was, it was a joke because I don't believe in the one. <laughs> now, the thing is, there's a way in which Olivia and I feel that way about each other. It's because we loved each other into that it's not because the stars aligned and we found each other and we found this way to be happy in the world. It's because two somewhat selfish people came together and we've been learning how to love for the last 17 years. And uh, I think we should talk more about loving into oneness and living into oneness than finding the one. Now that, that's what you can do. You can love each other into a oneness into a unity where you know each other deeply and you, you've grown together. But, but it's not finding the one magically that solves everything. But, but loving into oneness, that's what we ought to be after. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. But I, just before we get into talking about love, I want to share with you this quote. I've shared it with you before, I think. It may have been back when we were online. So I know about 20% of you saw it. Hopefully it was more than that. But this is... Uh, this is what concerns me when we talk about marriage. This is Alexander Schmemann, a, a, a Greek Orthodox scholar. The real sin of marriage today is not adultery. It is the idolization of the family itself. 
the refusal, refusal to understand marriage as directed toward the kingdom of God. The family has here ceased to be for the glory of God. It is not the lack of respect for the family. It is the idolization of the family that breaks the modern family so easily, making divorce its almost natural shadow. And you see, this cuts different ways. In one sense, it cuts directly at what we're talking about with the romantic myth. Because we idolize a person, we expect them to do what only God can do, and divorce is its natural shadow. But also, as we're taking a month here to talk about family and to talk about marriage, I want to, to remind you that we're not trying to idolize the family here either. In some churches, I cringe a little bit when I hear, oh, we're a family church. And what they mean is, well, we all are trying to support families. No, actually, Jesus would really challenge that. Because he would say, the family of God comes first. He came and, and said things that nobody would say in that world about families. Like, like uh, when somebody wanted to bury their dead father, he said, let the dead bury their own dead. I think we've talked about this in our Matthew series. He's calling them to reorder their priorities. Your first priority is not your family. Your first priority is the kingdom of God. And hopefully family can get caught up in that. But we see we live in a world that, that will, uh, again, it will c confuse us about that and make us think the first priority should be. We're not good people unless we put our family before the, the church, before God's kingdom. And uh, that's a deception. And, and the scriptures uh, call us against that. So don't idolize the family. Don't idolize any individual person, okay? We responded to this false enchantment last week, talking about being enchanted with a person to meet all our spiritual needs. And we said, no, our first enchantment should be with God. God is the only one who can actually meet the needs of the human heart in the deepest way. Once we have God as our first enchantment, we are free to enjoy a lot of other things, including marriage. But if we don't have that in place, we're likely to be messing up our marriages really badly. Okay, the second way I would respond to this romantic myth is by saying our first goal, our first goal is true love. I'm not talking about true love as it's presented in our romantic movies where you have true love's kiss and that says everything or something like that. I am talking about true love, biblical love. And to, to get into that, I want to take you to Galatians chapter 5. This is uh, where the Lord pointed me this week because you could really go to all kinds of places in the New Testament uh, to talk about this same idea. But I, I want to take you to Galatians 5 that Will led, read for us this morning. And uh, we're just going to touch on some, some ideas here. In Galatians 5, verse 13, now I didn't put it up here for you, but you're free to follow along, along on, in your Bibles or on your phone. Uh, this is after a, a, a rich theological conversation that Paul has been having with the Galatians that we don't have time to get into right now. He turns to the ethical exhortation part of his letter. That's in Galatians 5, 13. And the first thing he wants to say to them, after he's talked to them about being... Uh, dealing with the law and, and, and how Christ should be central, how the Spirit of God is what changes, uh, changes them, what they've experienced. Then he comes to this ethical section in ver chapter 5, verse 13, and he wants to talk about freedom. Listen to what it says. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Now I want to stop right there because we live in a kind of freedom-crazed world and we're likely to think wrong thoughts about freedom when we hear the, the word freedom today. And so let me just say to you that freedom is never absolute. Every freedom, everything that we uh, choose to engage in freely will limit us from engaging in other things. You're free to come to church here, but you can't be here and at another church at the same time, right? You're free to leave here right now. But you can't be here if you choose to leave. 
You're free to marry somebody. But once you marry that person, you're not free. Hopefully you're not free to marry somebody else. Years ago, and I always remember this because Terry and Becky laughed at me for it. I don't even remember my intentions at the time, really. But I remember I stood up to lead a song at the church in Louisiana where we were all together at the time. And uh, that was back when people really appreciated my ability to lead songs. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what was ha- happening with that particular song, but I, just, I said, okay, on this song, we're just going to practice free rhythm. And they laughed at that. I was trying to give us a little bit more freedom with the song, I guess. Uh, Olivia always criticizes me and says I don't have rhythm. And I always respond that I have rhythm at a higher level. Just because I don't agree with your rhythm doesn't mean I don't have rhythm. And I want people to stop judging people with their rhythm. But you see, the problem, the reason Terry and Becky laughed about that is, is as music people, they know. If you really practice that, if you really practice free rhythm, you destroy the song. You can't actually have both. You can have a beautiful song, or you can have freedom for everybody to do whatever they want to with it. But you can't have both. And, and today, what, what's happened is people have come to think of freedom uh, largely as autonomy. My freedom to do whatever... I want to say whatever the heck. I'm afraid somebody's going to get upset at me if I say heck. Whatever you want to do. I'm sorry if, that, if I didn't really say it. You see, I just told you what I wanted to say. Uh, you want to be free to do whatever you want to do. Every individual. Just, uh, just autonomy. That's not freedom. Freedom in, in, in Scripture is to become something beautiful. It's for communities to become something beautiful. It's for marriages to become something beautiful. But to practice that kind of freedom, you cannot just have autonomy. Let me say what else freedom is not. Freedom is not what you think of as American freedom. I thank God for our freedoms. You know, I, I'm, I'm very thankful for the freedoms we have in this country. It's just not what the Bible was talking about. And you see, in Texas, when you hear this, you're like, yep, my freedom to open carry my gun. <laughs> Whatever it is. And we may substitute our rights for our freedoms. That's what we think of. Don't you dare touch my rights. The attitude you get from a lot of people. And I, I wonder, do we have that same passion for our responsibilities? You better not mess with my rights. <laughs> okay? What about being responsible? Because that's where your life will get on the right track if you get passionate about your responsibilities more so than your rights. I mean, this is what you find in Scripture. This is what we're going to see here with the Apostle Paul talking. Look at what he says. Um, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You see, that is what we have a lot of times in our world is people who say, oh yes, I am free now, so I can do whatever I want to do. A lot of this is tied to sexuality in our world. I was online yesterday, uh, uh, just at a, at a news site flipping through, and there was a headline. I did not click on it. I hope you won't do it when you hear it. But I saw the headline. It said, uh, J-Lo, something like this, J-Lo poses in cute... Poses it, I'm not saying it right, something like 
poses for cute nude photo for her 53rd birthday. Thanks, J-Lo. You just contributed to the bondage of a number of people in our world who are trying to be free from sexual bondage. You have to think, I mean, this is a different sermon. We have to think about where our world has come to where that is okay and where you're considered immoral if you try to tell people not, not to do that. I mean, we have really gotten confused in our society today about what freedom means. This is, this is not what people should be free for. That's freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And we think of this in all kinds of ways. We're free, while we're talking about marriage, we're free to divorce. No fault divorce now. Just get out of it. And I'm not saying it's never appropriate. And let me disqualify anything else I say about this. What I'm saying about marriage today, I, I, I want you to think about it carefully. I don't mean it to apply to every single situation. If you're in an abusive situation, physically or emotionally, then that's different. And you may need to seek some counsel about what you do in, those, in that kind of situation. Okay, so, so just qualify what I'm saying with that. The scriptures are not, are not calling us uh, to live being run over and abused by uh, a spouse. But the freedom we have is not for us to do whatever we want to do. Instead, uh, what, what Paul says is, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the flesh, we hear that term if we were doing a, a series on Galatians, we'd spend a lot more time talking about what the flesh is. Just think of it right now. It's kind of your natural self that does what you want to do, unredeemed by God. Right? Your desires, the unredeemed desires. Don't use your freedom as an occasion to fulfill those kind of desires. Let me tell you what that looks like a little bit further in this chapter, and I'm not going to spend much time here. These are works of the flesh. We think of works of the flesh like getting drunk and, and committing uh, adultery or sexual immorality, and that's true. Those are works of the flesh. But, but mo most of the works of the flesh that Paul names are not those kind. Most of them are relational, communal things. He's thinking first of the church, but also it applies to our, to our homes. Enmity is when you're in a state of hostility. Do you live in a state of hostility in your home? Strife is conflict that's frequently verbal. I, I drew a lot on a, a lexicon uh, Lo and Nita, so you'll see their name up there a couple times when I'm, I'm quoting them, but, but all of this is probably informed somewhat by them. Uh, or, conversely, it can be, or, or relatedly, it can be called quarreling. Strife is quarreling. You express differences of opinion with at least some measure of antagonism or hostility. When you have differences in your home with your spouse, do those happen with a measure of antagonism or hostility? That's the flesh. Jealousy, bits of anger, rivalry, selfish, competitive quarrels. These are works of the flesh. They are from the kingdom of darkness. And God does not give us the freedom to live in these ways. I don't mean to say that there are no struggles. I certainly have had my own, and I'm continuing to grow. But God does not sanction us and say, oh, you're free in Christ. Okay, do these kind of things in your home. That's not what Christian freedom is. And to put it bluntly, these things have to stop. And so I just want to ask you, married people, to think about this. Do you, if you're thinking about strife, for example, 
Are you always saying bad things to each other? Do you insult or put each other down? That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the light and the goodness that comes in Christ. Are you passive-aggressive with each other? Do you tell little jokes or make little snide comments that sting, but they're hard to trace down? <laughs> so you kind of get off the, oh, man, I'm just joking. Is that what you do to your spouse? Do you assume that your spouse should serve you, but you should never serve him or her? That's the flesh-centered world. Do you jealously control your spouse? Do you withdraw into stone-cold isolation when you're upset? These are all things that, that we do. as we, They're weapons, weapons we use, and uh, they're works of the flesh. And in Christ, we're learning to put those things away. I don't mean to set up a 10-foot bar here and say, go jump over it, uh, because this is a learning process. But I do mean to call our attention to the ways that we are broken and the ways that we've embraced the works of the flesh and said that's going to be okay in our homes and say, no, it's not going to be okay because Christ calls us to something else. And then notice the next part of this verse. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's a beautiful verse. You don't catch the wordplay because in Greek, the word for service is actually the word for, for slavery also. And so he said, you're free. Then he calls them right back to think about being slaves but a different kind of slavery. A willing, free, giving of ourselves, giving away our rights, giving away all that we think we should have, that we deserve for the sake of someone else. I want to ask you today, to, as we've heard love so much in our churches, I want to ask you to reconsider what love means. Because we toss it around and we say, oh yeah, yeah, that love, that's so good. All we need is love. And yet we don't think about how when love is presented to the early Christians, it's a different way to live. We hear about agape love, that's the Greek word for it, and we think, oh yeah, that's a great word. That word didn't really exist. I mean, it, it existed, but it didn't mean what it meant until Jesus got a hold of it. The early Christians were just looking around for a word to try to explain what they had found in Christ. And the best one, the closest one they could find that approximated this idea of, of giving yourself was agape. So they took it and they filled it with all this meaning self-sacrifice, self-emptying, giving to another person, offering yourself up rather than thinking about your rights and your needs getting met all the time. I mean, imagine if Jesus had come into the world and loved us with romantic love. Being like, I want you, I need you, I gotta have you. You make me feel so good. That's not what he did. I mean, he did want us with a deep, deep love. But then he gave his life for us. And that showed us what love is to be in the church and in the home. That's where we learn love. The early Christians, they created a new meaning for the term agape. 
It was love like Jesus loved. That's why verse 14 says, for the whole law, we don't care about this that much because we say, oh, we're not under the law. But for, for people back then, the law really mattered. The whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is about this. You get to do what God wants you to do. You get to be obedient to God in a full sense if you really learn the love of Christ. That's going to take care of everything else. This is a love that nobody had even thought of before. I'm going to say a little bit about that in just a second when I close, but let me go just a little bit further in this chapter. But if you, if you uh, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, here's an animal energy. You ever seen dogs fighting? Pretty scary sight when you see two big dogs really going at it. Biting and, and ripping each other. If you bite and tear each other's flesh, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. God wants to keep us from destroying ourselves. You understand that? These are not just rules. These are things to help us, to protect us, to keep us from, from being consumed by each other. And so many times we let little things go in our marriages and we're always snipping and biting and tearing and we think well, we're okay and we don't even realize the damage that we're doing. The damage that we're doing to our children because of what they're absorbing in our home while we're living like that. And, and, and the Apostle Paul would call us to be aware of what might happen and how we could be destroyed ultimately. So many times people let things like that go on for so long until they look up and they realize they've lost more than they ever meant to lose. And that the love they could have cherished and preserved in their home is now so far gone they don't even know, know how they'd ever get it back. Beware if you're biting and devouring each other. Verse 16, and this gets us into a, a deeper reflection on what we're doing. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me say to you, that we are not offering a self-help program. And it's so tempting to think that way when we're talking about marriage because there's a thousand books out in the bookstore about the steps you can take to have a better marriage. And I'm not saying they're all useless. I'm just saying it doesn't take you where Jesus will take you. It doesn't take you where the church is going. The church is not offering a self-help program. The church is offering the power of the living God. Walk by the Spirit. The end of this chapter, if you live by the Spirit, let us, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is God's energizing presence, God's enveloping presence among and within us, teaching us how to live in a different way. And this is what we're after in Christ. We have, we're in on something that's bigger than ourselves, and we have responsibilities to someone who's greater than ourselves. So much moral effort goes on the church, in the church as if Jesus has not risen from the grave. And what we have to realize when we talk about... You see, if, you, if you're hearing this right now, and, and you just think about your spouse after years of struggles, maybe after years of, of tension and, 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 and anger and, and built up deep feelings, you may feel despondent when you hear something like this. Think, I can't ever do that. I want to encourage you to take your eyes off your spouse, if that's you, and look instead at the glorious and risen Lord Jesus. And realize that the reason we proclaim a different kind of family, a different kind of marriage, it's because Christ is risen from the dead. It's because Jesus died for our sins. 
It's because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church. And so we say, go for something different. Because of this great thing you're a part of with Christ, history has shifted forward. The epic of history has changed. We were over here, now we're over here. And this new world has, a, 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 it calls for a new kind of behavior, a new kind of life that we live in it. We have a new responsibility in this world. Responsibility that goes to God before others. Y'all have heard me talk about Miss Ruby, who was a brilliant, shining light of Christ in my life. I asked her once what the key to a good marriage was, and she said, you know, Carl and I, her husband Carl, we uh, sat down before we got married, and we had a long talk, and we both agreed that Jesus was going to be first in our marriage. And it wasn't going to be first about us. It's going to be first about him. And then her characteristic humility, she's like, I don't know if that's right, but it worked for us. <laughs> See, we have a responsibility as Christians to recognize where our priorities lie. And this is really the only hope, I think, for marriages because we're just, if it's just us on the, on the equal playing field, things don't turn out that well. Sometimes I have to forgive Olivia when she doesn't think she needs forgiveness. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, while I was in Kentucky, we had a difficult conversation, and I texted her the next morning, and I apologized. And she wrote back and said, thank you for your apology. And uh, she was nice, nothing bad. But I thought about responding and saying, thank you in advance for your apology. But you see, that wasn't coming. But that was okay. Because you know what? Olivia is not my most important relationship. And I am not her most important relationship. And so we do things sometimes for each other because we commune with God. And that's where we ultimately get our marching orders. And that's how we learn to do things that are hard in marriage. To forgive and to show kindness. Because it's not just us who are involved in this. Well, I want to close up here just by calling your attention to what a beautiful, beautiful thing we're called into with love and to help you just to think about it in light of all we're talking about. We're caught up in, in what Christ calls us to. We're caught, us in, caught up into what he models for us. And I have shared this with you before too, but it's a beautiful quote from one of N.T. Wright's books. And I, I want you to, to hear this. He's drawing on another book by a guy named Rodney Stark. One of the most striking passages in Rodney Stark's remarkable book, The Rise of Christianity, is his description of how Christians in ancient Turkey would react when their own town was struck by the plague. The rich, the well-to-do, and particularly the doctors would gather up family and possessions and leave town. They would flee to the hills, to fresher and less polluted air, or to friends or family in town some distance away. But the Christians, often among the poorest, and many of them slaves, would stay and nurse people, including those who were neither Christians nor their own family members, nor in any way obviously connected to them. Sometimes such people got well again. Not all diseases were necessarily fatal. Sometimes Christians would themselves catch the, the disease and die from it. But the point was made graphically and unmistakably. This was a different way to be human. Nobody had ever thought of living like that before. Why were they doing it? 
and the Christians called upon to explain the habits of heart which made it natural to do such things would talk about Jesus and about the God they had discovered through Jesus, the God whose own very nature was and is self-giving love. And I want to say to you that with all the good that came through ancient philosophy, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and the, uh, the Stoics and all those guys, they never came close to touching on this vision of ethical life. And they didn't get there because they didn't have the revelation of God in Christ. You see, when we talk about love in our marriages, let me tell you, we're not just talking about ethics. We're not just talking about how to have a sweet married life. What we're talking about is revelation. Revelation of the nature of God. Self-giving love. And this is the love that is the reason why we are here today. Christ becoming human, taking on the form of a servant, dying the death of a slave. This Christ, our model. This Christ, our very life. We draw from him. And his love flows from us. Love is not something you can say, I'll turn it on when I get to work in the morning. I'll turn it on when the weekend comes. Love is something that we live in and we train in it and it has to be a training in our homes. And this love goes beyond not just doing the works of the flesh. This love looks to the other person and says, I want to study your well-being. I want to study your happiness and seek how I can contribute to that. If you look at old traditional today everybody wants to rewrite vows and make them make them different but if you look at old traditional wedding vows you have you have these ideas of caring for people when they're sick and they're poor and they're hurting you know what that is that's a christian worldview <laughs> that's what it is it's a way of viewing the world that came to us through the crucified and risen lord jesus and i want to encourage you to embrace it in your marriages it's so beautiful that this idea of love is, is captured in our scriptures. Only time it's used for two different individuals, I believe, in the scriptures is, is when the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, husband, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's our model. Justin Bieber doesn't get to tell us what our model is or whoever else it is out there singing. Our model is Christ. There's a song that I'll leave with you as we, we close here that uh, Olivia and I really like. In fact, she sang it, recorded it for me. Uh, Josh helped uh, a couple years ago on our anniversary because it actually is real about marriage. Um, it's, it's a Christian song. Um, if, you, if you want to look it up, it's by Audrey Assad. I think it's called Ought to Be. Um, and what she says is, she goes through, our love may not be this, it may not be that. Um, it may not be red as the roses yet. It may not be strong as the old oak tree. But she says this, love planted deeply becomes what it ought to be. And I want to encourage you, wherever you are in your marriage, to let it be planted deeply by Christ so that it can become what, it's ought, what it ought to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of knowing the truth about life, for the good news 
Protect us from lies, Lord, so that we can see clearly the goodness and beauty of life in your kingdom. And bless every marriage in this church today. In Jesus' name, amen.